0: This episode of Gospel Bound is sponsored by Zondervan Reflective, publisher of Timothy Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation, by Colin Hansen. Learn more at timothykellerbook.com. Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. In their booklet, Gospel Centered Ministry, TGC co founders Don Carson and Tim Keller describe how the redemptive story of scripture, or biblical theology, culminates in Jesus Christ and his gospel and from Christ that gospel then guides us in how we live every aspect of our lives I have never seen a book do this more effectively than Christopher Watkins biblical critical theory how the unfolding story makes sense of modern life published by Zondervan it is simply one of the best books I've ever read Not that the book is simple (laughs) at nearly 700 pages. It's profound in its depth of insight, drawing from observations of culture as well as close readings of scripture. Watkin does not try to explain and defend the Bible to the culture. He seeks to analyze and critique the culture through the Bible. He writes, quote, there is nothing quite so radically subversive today as sound doctrine and godly living. Now, Tim Keller wrote the foreword for Biblical Critical Theory, and in this special season of Gospel Bound, we're exploring in depth several key influences that appear in my book, Timothy Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation. We're pleased also that this podcast is now a part of the ongoing work of the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. Uh, Watkin teaches at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, and I'll ask him about the philosopher Charles Taylor and social criticism, which have played such a key role in Keller's intellectual formation, especially since the mid-2000s. Chris, thank you for writing Biblical Critical Theory and for joining me on
1: Gospel Bound. It's a real joy to be here. Colin, and thank you for those really kind words of introduction. (laughs) There are many kind words of commendation of
0: your book right here on the back for anybody watching there. It's really been a very widely and um, uh, widely uh, commended book, and rightfully so. All right, simple question right off the bat. What is biblical critical theory, and what is it
1: not? (laughs) Simple to ask complicated to answer that's why i'm on this side chris (laughs) jokes on you um (laughs) it is what the bible itself does to culture and what christians for 2000 years have been doing to the cultures in which they've been living i guess would be the shortest answer to it so if you take the old testament prophets what are they doing in relation both to the the culture of israel and to the other nations around them well, they're, they're critiquing them from a point that's outside that particular culture, um, from what some philosophers have called a standpoint of redemption. They, they look at God and his plans and his huge sort of um, uh, plan for for the world and for his people, uh, and they critique cultures through that lens. Um, it's what Jesus does in his parables. It's what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 1 when he talks about the the foolishness of the cross being wiser than human wisdom, or the weakness of the cross being stronger than human strength. And it's what Augustine does really quite brilliantly in The City of God, where he takes the whole of late Roman culture, and he reads it through the whole of the biblical story. So the second half of The City of God is is Genesis to Revelation, and everything in between, as a way to understand and to frame and critique late Roman culture. So that's what biblical critical theory is. It's, it's what the Bible does. It's what Christians have done. But of course, you can't mention critical theory today without resonating with, with current events and things like critical race theory as well. So let me just say a little word on, on how it fits with that sort of thing. There's the idea since the Enlightenment of taking a, a critical perspective on the, the whole of society in order to cast a vision for a better society. And this has always gone on, but there's a particular sort of way of doing that that's that's, that's characteristically post-Enlightenment. And what it does, all of these different critical theories that, that, that are after the Enlightenment, they make you see certain things in society that you might have missed before. You know, that could be power relations or oppression or, or even things like, you know, government red tape that, that you, you might just not have been aware of. They, they make things really stand out to you. And they also make particular things valuable. They, they show the value of certain things in society. And they also encourage you to condemn other things in society. So they make things visible and they make things valuable. And all different critical theories do this. So I'm, I'm thinking of, um, you know, All your postmodern thinkers, Derrida, Foucault, Deleuze, all of those sorts of people have these critical approaches to reality that make certain things visible and certain things valuable. And when you come to the Bible, you, you find that it is doing the same thing. It's not copying them, of course, it preceded them. <laughs> and right. there's nothing derivative about the way the Bible is doing this. But you will notice things in reality once you've read the Bible that you wouldn't have particularly noticed before. Um, the widows and orphans, for example, and, and their importance and um their, their plight in society is something the Bible sensitizes you to. Um, and you, you will find certain things valuable once you've you've been reading the Bible that you might not have found valuable before. So, for example, the um glory of God in creation or or, or the, the value of God's name, as the Bible puts it, is something that might never have struck you as being particularly valuable beforehand. And so the Bible is also giving you this critical perspective on reality. And just to round this answer off, one powerful argument that that I came across in a, a, a critique of, of Augustine by, by a guy called um, Charles Matthews is that the, the origin of all of this critical perspective on society it is profoundly Christian. If you think what other ancient society has prophets in its midst with an authority to critique the regime. You know, you're not going to get Assyrian kings allowing prophets to sort of walk among the people saying that the king is corrupt. That just doesn't happen. This is a distinctively biblical thing from the beginning. And and Matthew says that the first time in, in the history of Western cultural critique that you see someone taking the whole of a culture and subjecting it to a systematic critique, is Augustine's City of God. And so all of these broad cultural critical approaches draw to some extent on this Augustinian template. And so there's a sense in which the whole enterprise of critical theory is, is really radically biblical and radically Christian in its origin.
0: And one of the things that Tim Keller has said about us bringing together the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics is we are trying to do in our day collaboratively What Augustine did in his. And you just exactly laid out um, precisely what uh, what he has in mind for that, which is, I think, why other people like Kevin Van Hooser have described your book as an important update of a city of God. Um, You know, this next question I think will jump onto just elaborating on that last point that you just made. I want to go deeper on this quote. You say, We live at a peculiar moment in history when our culture's assumptions and values retain a deeply Christian imprint, but when the teachings of the Bible are largely unknown, misunderstood, or condemned. This makes for a strange and at times amusing situation in which society increasingly sets itself against Christianity, but does so by using distinctively Christian arguments and assumptions." Now later you write as if Paul, the Areopagus, people of modernity, I see that in every way you think yourselves very irreligious, but your irreligion is very Christian." (laughs) I wonder, maybe combine a little bit about how does one go about just setting out to write a book of this kind of scope and magnitude, and what are you trying to help expose in terms of this contradiction of our particular age in the hopes of leading
1: people back to Christ? Another little question there.
0: They're <laughs> all going to be like <laughs> this. This is what happens when you write big books, get big
1: questions. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's what happens when you come on Gospel Bound, isn't it? Um, let, let, me, let me do my best. Let, let me scrabble around to try and find something to say. The, um, the The first half of the question is getting at the idea that we're both back in a situation that we've, Seen time and again in the history of the Christian Church, and we're in a really new situation, and both of those things are true. So the the old situation is that, in a sense, we're back to Rome, uh, and back to the early centuries of Christianity. Because for a while in the West, you know, in a, a nuanced way, Christianity has has been a, a hegemonic ideology, if you want to put it that way. That Christianity has has been either the the thing that you've got to sign up to to get on in society, you know, for many uh, centuries in, in the modern uh, era, uh, or, or it's been widely respected. You know, people have had a lot of um, time for Jesus, at least as a moral teacher, if nothing else. Um that is now vanishing. And we're back to being a sort of minority under suspicion, I suppose, who's intentions for society are regarded as predominantly malevolent by a significant number of people within society, which is just how it was in the early centuries of Christianity in Rome. So there's nothing new about that. It's just a return, if you like, to the Christian normal. Yeah. But there's something really, really different as well, which is that our society as it stands today, Western society as it stands today, has, has so been built on assumptions that take root in biblical soil that it can't jettison Christian influence without renouncing its very self. And and it has no categories, no way to do that. Um, Tom Holland is really good on this in Dominion. Glenn Scrivener is really good. You've had him on the show, haven't you? Glenn Scrivener is really good on this uh, in The Air We Breathe.
0: Yeah, both of them the, the, have been on Gospel Bound. Yeah, big questions for them. Fantastic,
1: too. yeah. And, and so you know, democracy... Quality, freedom, all, all of these things, all of these hills on which the modern West is willing to die, drink so deeply from the biblical well that you can't disentangle them. And so we're living in this really strange period where on, on the surface, society is increasingly rhetorically rejecting Christianity, but it's doing so from a standpoint that is saturated with Christian assumptions. And that's really quite tricky for Christians to navigate, um, it's okay. a complex situation that we haven't faced before. Well, I, you mentioned that we haven't
0: faced before. One of the ways I describe the challenge of the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics is that we are literally facing a situation that no one in the history of the church before our times in the West has faced before. And I don't mean that to sound arrogant, and I don't mean that to sound ahistorical, or meant to say that, that we need some sort of new strategy other than the ordinary means of grace and good faithful ministry like always um, from God's word and by God's spirit for God's glory. That's not what I'm trying to say. But there is a unique challenge that has not been faced of a, of a culture that has moved away from Christianity and is blaming Christianity for holding its further progress back by using Christian arguments that would be inexplicable
1: without Christianity. That is I mean, unique. It is unique, but it's not, and this is going to sound weird, it's not unique in being unique in the sense that <laughs> every every period in Christian history yes. has new challenges to face. So if is. you think of Augustine in the 5th century, like no one had faced the sack Correct. of Rome exactly from a christian they, point of view where people are saying christians are to blame for the collapsing yeah, they society. only
0: knew uh, the, uh, the church had only known the roman empire in its hundreds of years of history yeah so we exactly. have new things to face yeah. in
1: the same way that every generation in the history of the yeah. church
0: has had new that's things a to great do. way to put it it's new but it's not the only new thing the church has faced before we're not doing not the same the thing, thing augustine thing did yeah, exactly. We're we're doing the same thing. We're not we're not saying exactly the same things Augustine did, but we are trying to attempt the same
1: um, response that he attempted
0: in his yeah. generation
1: to his condition. And therefore, you can look at the way that he tried to come to terms with something that was new, and yeah. learn from that for how we can come to terms with our different thing, that is yeah. equally new. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, um, we mentioned
0: that. Uh, what we're looking at here is also a lot of the influences that you share with Tim Keller, ones that I've covered in Timothy Keller, his spiritual intellectual formation. Chief among them appears to be Charles Taylor. A lot of what I just said in that last uh, statement, of course, as you know, Chris, comes from Taylor. Um, but let's just talk about a basic issue there. Explain Charles Taylor's notion of a social imaginary. And I want to know specifically,
1: though, how it differs from the concept of worldview. It's an incredibly helpful idea, this idea of a social imaginary. Because it I think it includes what we're getting at when we use the word worldview, but it but it also includes other things that worldview doesn't really function without, but that we often forget. So the way that a worldview is, let's say, caricatured, is often that the way that we engage with the world is all through concepts and ideas. And it's ideas that drive everything, and then everything else follows in the wake of ideas. And Charles Taylor quite helpfully points out in uh, his book, Modern Social Imaginaries, and then he comes back to the idea of the social imaginary in, in other books, that we, we're really more complex beings than that. Ideas are really important, and they do shape us, absolutely. But they're not the only thing that shapes us. And that there's a way of, he calls it the our sort of sense of how things go in the world, our, our orientation in reality, our sense of which way is up and which way is down, if you like, isn't just about ideas. It's about habits and assumptions and stories, images, even about objects in the world and the way that we set out our cities and our buildings and things like that. And those things are not irrational. But they can't be reduced to simple ideas. And so his idea of a social imaginary is the the way that we look out at the world, the way that we engage with the world, the assumptions that we have about the world that includes the ideas that we have about the world, but isn't just the ideas.
0: Yeah, it's been life-changing, I think, paradigm-shifting for me, and much more inclusive, I think, um, of... Of other concepts as you mentioned than what we think of as worldview. I think we think of worldview as purely conscious. This is what I think about the world, where a social imaginary is many unspoken assumptions,
1: I think, which are often the most powerful in a in a culture's shaping of us. I, I think that's right. But I think we also need to be careful of dichotomizing the two things. So that you either plant yeah. your flag on the ideas, you know, side. Or you plant your flag in the um, stories and images and habits and intuitions. Signs. Right. Absolutely. And yeah. be- that, that's such a caricature, again, of, of how we think. I think we need to have a way of understanding human engagement with reality that doesn't try to push ideas to the side as if they're unimportant, but that doesn't enthrone them as the only conduit between humanity and reality either. And that's one of the lovely things about Charles Taylor. He's not down on ideas, but he shows that our engagement with reality isn't just about concepts. Yes, absolutely. It's a great way to put it, Chris. Um, you, You
0: capture another element with this book that is core to what we're trying to accomplish together and what we're pursuing together with the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. And that's where you say that your book is not trying to show that Christianity is true, but that you hope readers will reach a point where they want christianity to be true explain what you mean by that
1: well i can see that question setting off alarm bells in some listeners heads well, you yeah, know, it so, it. That christianity yeah. is true. so yeah. let me first of all say that i am not saying that it doesn't matter whether christianity is true or not it will be very hard to read passages like 1 corinthians 15 yeah. in the bible and come away with the idea that it doesn't matter whether christianity is true so that's not what it's about the the idea however is that in a society where Christianity is is one of the options that people see out there among many others, um, that people are not really going to be bothered whether it's true or not and therefore bothered to try and work out for themselves whether it's true unless they can see some value in it being true. What difference would this make if it were true? And this is where an apologist like Blaise Pascal with his pensee, is so brilliant because he shows the skeptic who doesn't care whether it's true or not that they should care whether it's true or not because of the difference that it makes hmm. um, and, and he shows how um, it's an incredibly 21st century approach if you think about it yeah. he says we're lost in distraction we're distracting ourselves through our lives yeah. can't focus on anything hmm. um, he could be writing today couldn't he right um, and and He's, he's showing how the the God that's set forth in the Bible um, rescues you from a whole host of dangerous and destructive beliefs. Um, and so he says um, and again, this this is so incredibly contemporary that we we have a tendency to see human beings either simply as animals, um, ephemeral, you know like basically machines, uh, no dignity, no worth, um, just you know, cranking out life day by day, and then dying, and there's no meaning to it. Or he says, if we don't hold to that view, in the modern world, we tend to lurch to the opposite view, which is to see human beings as little gods, defining the reality around them, defining the meaning of their own existence. And he, as he quite rightly points out, that's a really uncomfortable. Precarious, dangerous situation to be in, and um, you know, lurching from the idea that I'm nothing, I'm an animal, so I'm everything, I'm God, uh, and and he shows how th- the gospel rescues you from that predicament by saying well, you're you're made in the image of God, uh, and that means that you're you have dignity, but you don't have deity, and mm-hmm. both of those are good. You know, you're in the image of God, it's a huge mm-hmm. dignity. But you're the image, you're not actually God. Uh, and that is also good news and and so he speaks into these modern tensions uh that a good news word a healing word a peaceful word uh that comes from the bible and and it's that sort of approach i think that that helps you to see that no it matters whether the bible is true or not it, it's imp- um, important to investigate whether it's true or not because its implications for you know the our health our peace our orientation in the world are whether we understand and engage with and enjoy ultimate reality or not is is all in the balance, and so it's not a trivial question whether it's true or not.
0: Right. Well, I, th- I think you just covered in that answer as well. I was going to ask you about what you describe as the post Christian dichotomy, what you describe as both too great and too humble a vision of humanity at the same time. You just covered that, right? With uh, made in the image of
1: God, but not God. Yeah, and this is something that I think um, you know the the Old Testament prophets, when they look out onto a world of sin, they're not gleeful, are they? They're sorrowful. There's a pathos to their reaction yeah. um, to, to to sin and God's judgment, and and I think this is one of those moments in the modern world that really should evoke pathos and sadness and compassion from Christians when when we see. You know, so Thomas Hobbes in the um, introduction to his, his book Leviathan, which is one of the founding texts of, of modernity and of modern political theory, he, he just comes straight out with it and says, basically, we're cogs and wheels and springs. That's all there is to human beings. And, yeah. um, you know, so don't fool yourself thinking there's anything more. Uh, and then, you know, you, you've got other positions that that try to elevate humans to the point where Uh, We're doing things that traditionally God alone has done, you know, defining reality in our image, defining good and evil, um, um, defining the meaning of our own existence. And to, to to live on the horns of that dilemma, as the modern world is, is forcing many people to do, is, is agonizingly heartrending. It messes with humanity to, to try and have to juggle with those two things. And, and I think that as Christians, um, the 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 joy and the the peace and the the wonder of being in the image of God is that you're, you're lifted off the horns of that dilemma you're, you're neither a machine nor are you uh, uh God himself thank goodness um and 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 the the, the word therefore that the Christians can speak into these tensions in modern culture is is a really constructive um uh helpful peace bringing one I think
0: Look, uh, Chris, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for two short answers, I know a bit hard, short answers on the next two questions. This is uh, from In Biblical Critical Theory, How the Bible's Unfolding Story Makes Sense of Modern Life and Culture, new from Zondervan. All right, you did not introduce your concept of diagonalization in this book, but as with some of your previous work, it's pretty core. Briefly explain what you mean by
1: diagonalization. I hear you calling short answers and briefly I'm getting into lecture mode, aren't I? Um, what do I mean by diagonalization? Okay it's the idea that the modern world again and again takes biblical truth and uh, rips it apart mm. and sets one part of biblical truth against the other. Mm. so image of God will be one, we're either animals or we God. um it does it sometimes with justice. And love, God is both just and loving. They're in beautiful tension, They're beautiful harmony. They're not in tension with each other. Um, But so often in modern political discourse, you've either got to be on the, the hard justice side or the soft compassion side. Aspects of God's character ripped apart, set against each other as if you've got to choose one or the other. And diagonalizing is saying, no, you don't have to choose one or the other. They're part of a rich, complex biblical harmony, and we shouldn't rip them apart to begin with. Was that short enough? No, that's great. That, that, was,
0: that was really helpful. I've read, of course, your previous works on this, and that actually taught me <laughs> more of what that of what that means. Um, but that's such a good way of explaining it. Now, I don't recall if this is in your previous work, so you'll have to forgive me for this. Explain the difference between the N-shaped dynamic
1: and the U-shaped dynamic. This is wonderful. Not, not the words, but the, the truth that they're trying to point to. Um so in almost all world religions historically and certainly in the modern secular world the idea is that you get what you pay for you you have to earn your status and you you sacrifice to the gods you give the gods something the god pays you back you know you, you kill an animal then it rains whatever uh, and in the modern world you, you get where you are by your merit. You work hard, you get the reward. No, no, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Um, and it's, it's just the assumed way that everything works. Now, of course, it, it works well if you have certain privileges and, and the opportunity, um, to work hard in a particular area. Um, but it's an incredibly iniquitous paradigm, um, for people who, for whatever reason, um, uh, are uh, disabled in a particular way. It, it, it's a very um brutal way of running a society. A, a glowing and glorious and delicious exception to this is the way that God relates to his people mm-hmm. in the Bible. Because he doesn't say, you've got to earn your status with me. If you perform really well, then I will be your God. And if you don't, then I will crush you. What he does is he makes a covenant with his people where all the pressure, if you like, is on his his side. So you see, when he, when Abraham's asleep and uh, God, uh, the, the pillar of fire, walks through the middle of the, of the animals that have been cut up, what God is saying is, I'm taking it upon myself to keep these promises. You know, woe to me if I don't keep my covenant to you, Abraham. Oh, and by the way, you're asleep. So there's nothing that you are doing to earn this um, uh, status with me, and to to know that your status comes from a God who has chosen to covenant Himself to you, not because you're good, but because um, He has decided to do that, yeah. is just so deeply liberating and awe-inspiring, and so the the U-shaped dynamic is the idea of the the left-hand side of the U, that the, the downstroke is God, mm-hmm. first of all, reaching down to us before we've even given him a thought and coming to us in grace with wonderful gift. And then the, the right-hand upward stroke of the U is us responding to him in gratitude. Uh, the N-shape is the opposite. First of all, we reach up to God. We offer him something. We prove our worth and our merit. We perform for him. Uh, And then the God may or may not choose to bless us, or society or the market or whatever may or may not choose uh, to bless us as a reward, but it's something we've earned. So N-shaped dynamic, you earn what you get. U-shaped dynamic, it's a gift.
0: And what your book does is it walks through using those two core concepts throughout the entire book. So there's a narrative thread not only through the biblical theology, but also those kind of... The diagonalization, how the, the cult, our cultures tend to split biblical truth and how biblical truth cuts between them, um, diagonalizes them, and then same thing of how the world, our natural tendency in sin, is the N-shaped dynamic and making religion in our own image, whereas the tendency of God, biblically, the pattern is always the U-shape. It's a wonderful concept. It's what, part of what makes the book so, so coherent despite all that it covers and uh, its size. Okay, another big question, looking for a smaller answer. Um, why do you describe secularization as
1: a Christian heresy? This is fascinating. <sighs> okay, this is Charles Taylor again, to a certain extent. Um, the, the idea of there's only one God for anyone, regardless of who you are, there is one God who made everything and rules over everything and all the other gods are idols is quite a distinctively biblical idea. So in the ancient world, each territory, each people would have their God and they'd sort of get along together. Um, You know, they fight each other. You know, my God's better than your God, but, but there's still a sense that you've got your God. And the Romans didn't particularly object to other people's gods, providing that they also said that Caesar was a god. And whatever other gods you worship, that's fine. You just add add Caesar to them, which is the reason they had such a problem with with the Jews and then with the Christians. Um, But the Bible won't allow that. You know, Isaiah mocks idols. He says, you know, you burn half of your log on the fire and out of the other half, you make a god and decide to worship it. What, what What a ridiculous behavior. And so the the Bible is radically demythologizing in that sense, if you take the the sort of polytheistic ancient world. Um, and the, the idea of, of stripping away a lot of the superstition uh, around in society is a, is a biblical idea. And so what the Enlightenment is doing, in a sense, is it's taking that biblical impetus, that critique of idolatry, that cultural critique that's there in the Bible, and it's turning it around and trying to apply it to Christianity itself and to say, you know, in the way that, yeah. that atheists are quite fond of saying, why do you not just go one God further? You know, you already don't believe in almost all the gods, just you know, go on further and don't believe in the God you do believe in. I think the the problem with that idea and, and where it falls down is that the very impetus for demythologization relies on the idea of a standpoint outside the status quo from which you can critique the status quo, and you can't have that without a transcendent God. And so it becomes slightly self-defeating and bootstrapping if you try and do it, uh, for all gods. And so it's a secularization is a, a Christian heresy in the sense that it is taking that biblical move mm. of, of demythologization mm. and it's trying to turn it on Christianity itself. But for the reason I said it, it, it's, it's not easy. You can't just turn it on Christianity itself and expect it to work as it does within a biblical framework. Mm.
0: Very helpful. Let me ask you next next couple questions about Tim Keller. So again, we're doing a special season on influences on, on Tim Keller here. And my book is covering his spiritual intellectual formation, but he, I know he's influenced you. I'd love to know a little bit about that relationship and what you've learned from him.
1: And you want a short answer again, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> There's so much to say. Um, I, I first came across um Tim Keller, um, it must have been, I don't know, 15 years or so ago. Um, I was actually taking a a course back in Cambridge that was led, um, it was such a privilege to be led by Carl Truman and Don Carlson. And I went up to Don Carlson after one of his talks and I said, you know, I'm doing philosophy. Who should I read? Who should I Mm -hmm. listen to? And he scribbled down on a bit of paper, which sadly I've lost. Um, oh. this name that I'd never heard of hmm. he said you, sh- you should listen to this guy Tim Keller he's doing some really interesting stuff in New York and I said okay fair enough then anyway, I went and Googled him and got some talks and I think oh my goodness that the cultural incisiveness and the way that that he's bringing the Bible to bear on late modern culture in a way that's not leaving the Bible behind but is actually pressing more deeply into it was was just so eye-opening so a lot of the cultural critique that i'd come across gave left you with the impression that the better cultural critique you do the further you pull away from the bible right it's almost as if there's a spectrum between sensitive cultural critique on the one hand and and deep biblical understanding and faithfulness on the other hand and i'd never really been satisfied with that i think you know like that's not what augustine's doing like why can't we do both and then the the more I listened to Tim Keller, the more I thought, hey, this is someone who is doing both. Like he's in order to do better cultural critique, he's taking the Bible seriously. Yeah, um, And, you know, as you listen to him, you pick up the moves that he makes. I don't think he labels them, but, you know, the idea of diagonalization is, is right there in the way yeah. that 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 keller will often set up oppositions in late modern culture and say the bible refuses that dichotomous choice and it actually gives you a richer way of engaging with reality than either of those two reductive ideas so there's there's so much not only in what he says but in the way he handles culture that i've just found you know immensely formative and helpful over the years and you've done a good
0: job of explaining why we call it the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics and what we're hoping to make normative is that association in the church with biblical authority with insightful and deep cultural critique, keeping those things with an evangelistic goal. Now, um, you do not follow Tim's exact pattern of subversive fulfillment, borrowing again from our friend Daniel Strange. Could you explain how you differ? Um, I noted in here, I'll just quote the the way you describe it in the book. I propose to reframe the schema in terms that remain closer to the flow of Paul's thought. One, a diagnosis of cultural values. Two, a presentation of the scandalous cross. Three, the cross rejected as the antithesis of cultural values. And four, the cross revealed as the fullness of cultural
1: values. Why do you disagree with Tim here? I'm... I'm not completely convinced that I do, Colin. <laughs> okay. I, I, I perhaps use different words, but look, I'd be interested to, to see whether he thinks he disagrees with what I'm saying. I, I suspect um, that although the, the words we use might be different, I, I'm not sure that we don't. look. So let me let me explain what I say, and then you you can tell me whether you think <laughs> Tim Keller would say something different. Go for it. So 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 it's the one Corinthians one paradigm, and what Paul is yeah. doing there is he's hitting two things really, really hard. And the brilliance is that he's hitting both of them. The first one is the antithesis between the the gospel or the cross and the culture. So he says, Greeks look for wisdom, Jews demand miraculous signs. We preach Christ crucified, foolishness to Greeks, um, and uh, weakness to Jews. So he's saying, if you continue looking for wisdom in the way you're looking for it, dear Jews, you will not find it in the cross. That's not your view of wisdom. There's an antithesis. This is not what you're looking for. And he's also saying, if you're looking for strength in the way you think that strength is manifested, dear Jews, you're not going to find it in the cross. So he's hammering antithesis. There's an antithesis between gospel and culture. If that was all he's doing, it would be pretty unremarkable. Mm -hmm. But he's also This is absolute genius. He's also showing how that very same cross that the Jews think is weak and the Greeks think is foolish is actually the fulfillment of everything that they're mistakenly searching for in the way they're searching for it. So towards the end of that passage, he says the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. He's using the Greeks Mm. own word. You want wisdom. You want real wisdom. You will find it in the place you're least likely to look for it. So his challenge to the Greeks is if you're willing to come to the place you'd least think of finding wisdom, there you will find its fullness. And so he's hammering fulfillment. If you really want the fullness, the depth, the riches of wisdom, if you want to get serious about searching for wisdom, you need to come to the cross and there you'll find the fulfillment of fullness of everything that you're searching for. And so he does, he puts together what contemporary cultural critique often tragically separates so we've got our antithesis people we, we there yep. must be clear blue water between uh, the bible and the culture mm-hmm. and, you know the, the bible is not just some sort of warmed over version of the culture running on the cultures coattails trying to be you know down with the romans or down with the the, the late modern people we, we've got to we've got to show that they're different which is true And then you get the other people saying, no, 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 the Bible is the fulfillment of all the cultural narratives. And what we need to show people is that what they're really searching for is actually found in Christ. And if they they just go a little bit further, they'll find find it in him, which is sort of true as well. But what Paul does is he shows you that you can't separate those two. So you, you can't just be an antithesis person or just a fulfillment person and remain biblical. If you follow the 1 Corinthians 1 pattern, you are... Hard on antithesis. You're 100% all out on antithesis. And you're also fully leaning into fulfillment. And that's his brilliance. And that's how he cuts across a lot of the missteps of Christian cultural critique today. Because you don't have to choose between antithesis and fulfillment.
0: Yeah. I think maybe the only area that you might differ is I think Tim spends a little bit more time on exposing the weakness and folly of the cultural antithesis on its own terms. I think that's probably the only area where there'd be disagreement. But you probably do plenty of
1: that too. <laughs> so that may be the only difference. Look, it's fair to say that he also does it a lot better. <laughs> I think we could probably be agreed on that.
0: Well, I, I, I mean, I teach, I teach in cultural apologetics, and so I'm working with my students through preaching. How do you incorporate the elements of subversive fulfillment in preaching? Because you may think that there's no pattern, but when you're introduced to the pattern, you can see that there's a way to make these arguments. Um, and your book does a good job. That's why I wanted to talk about diagonalization, want to talk about the N-shape and the U-shape because there are these patterns that can be helpful at diagnosing and then they can help give you a structure when you're teaching, when you're working through these things. So anyway, so it can be, it can be helpful to know it's not just, it is an instinct, just like what Tim Keller talks about preaching Christ from the Old Testament. It is an instinct, but it's also a learned effort exegetically cultural analysis the same thing it becomes an instinct but there's also
1: typically a method of doing it and in the book i i try to make that method visible so it's exactly. something that you know paul yep. is doing that augustine is doing right. that christians have done for 2000 years exactly. that the old testament prophets are doing but it, it sort of passes under the radar a lot and so I, I try to to stick labels on it and say let's call what they're doing this and the importance is not the label, the importance is, is trying to bring to the surface the moves that they're making over and over right. again so that we can learn them and try and use similar moves in, in the way that we engage with culture.
0: One last question, Chris, which is probably too big to be even possible. But, you know, hey, we're already way into this interview,
1: so why not just you know keep escalating
0: things? um just, just you
1: know, don't say that you want a one sentence answer
0: no i don't i don't i don't um just play prophet for a second um modern day prophet you've covered a lot of you covered a lot of historical ground in this book but i wonder what's next and then, I'll, I'll put it this way to you i mentioned this let me give you an example so did an interview with ross Stouth, the amazing columnist for the new york times he's been a guest a couple times here on gospel bound and and with me, and, and I asked him, we were talking about all the dynamics in the church and culture and politics in 2016, the United States, and it was quite a, quite a moment. And I said, what's keeping you up at night? And he said, none of that stuff. That stuff doesn't bother me at all. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about my girls and smartphones. And I think in a lot of ways, he was ahead of his time. And understanding that, it's like, yes, I'm not so much worried about what happens in the Vatican. I'm worried about what happens with my girls and smartphones. So in light of that, you can take this positively, negatively. You can do both. What's getting you up in the morning? And what's keeping you up late at night?
1: Okay. So I um, had a very wise pastor um when i was living in the uk and he was fond of saying the bible makes it very clear how the story will end but it doesn't give us the next step hmm. so we know where we're heading eventually we we know how it will all play out Yeah. um but we 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 don't know in a sense that the road straight ahead of us and how we get there and in a sense, the best way, I think, to be ready for whatever the next step is, and anyone who tells you that they know with certainty what's coming down the road in, in five years' time, I, I think needs treating with a pinch of salt, mm-hmm. is to keep our eyes focused on that eschatological unraveling. Th- think of it as riding a bike. Okay, How do you stay on your bike and not fall off? Well, you don't look straight down at your feet. If if you look yeah. right in front of you, you you'll tend to fall off the bike. The way that you keep your balance is is by fixing on something ahead of you, and then you know your body does the rest and, and you keep yourself on the bike. And I I think there's a sense in which living the Christian life is very similar. I don't know what's going to happen in the next few years, and I don't know no no one. Well, very few people were predicting the war in Ukraine. Very few people were predicting mm-hmm. coronavirus. Stuff like that is going to happen. We just yeah. don't know what it is. But the way to be ready for it is not to obsess about what's going to happen next year it is to keep your eyes on the final things not as a way of escaping the here and now but as a way of orienting yourself in the here and now in a way that's going to put you in a posture that's ready for whatever comes and this this again is is what augustine's doing so there's an immediate crisis that he's facing rome has been sacked people are blaming the christians panic stations What does he do? He tells the whole Christian story from Genesis to Revelation. You can think, you know, what is he doing? He needs to address the situation that's right in front of him. But he realizes that the way to do that is by setting it in the context of God's big unfolding story. And So he does deal with the sacrament. He doesn't ignore it, but, but he shows how it's contextualized and relativized in the big overarching story. Uh, of God's redemptive plan for the world. And it's it, it really is hilarious. There's this guy called Marcellinus who writes Augustine this letter, like, help the sack of Rome, what do we do? <laughs> Augustine replies with this 1,000-page book, The City of God. Like, <laughs> you know, Whatever Marcellinus thought that Augustine was going to say, he probably wasn't expecting that. Uh, but it's a brilliant reply because it shows that you can't get a handle on the present without having the big story. Things don't make sense outside that big story. And I Mm. I think, again, that's what a lot lot of our cultural critique stumbles at because it it thinks that in order to be relevant, you've got to deal just with with the now. But you can't understand the now. It's got no meaning, no frame, unless you can understand how it fits into the big rhythms and patterns of biblical revelation. And that's what Augustine brilliantly gives us a pattern for.
0: A lot of cultural critique is small sample size. It's talking about radical changes because of some sudden recent shift. And the fact is, when you take the larger sample size, you do start to see the more important changes. And then you take another step back. You look at it from the cosmic biblical
1: perspective and you see the real story there that makes sense of the others. And, and it also just one word on that, Colin, because I, I can imagine some listeners thinking, so you're saying that the things happening now don't matter, that we should just, you know, sort of lose ourselves in some biblical dream world of creation and fall and, and sort of lose our relevance. And, and I think someone like Bonhoeffer is really, really helpful on this because he yeah. would say, no, it actually makes the present count more. It, it dignifies the present to put it in this broader yeah. context. And he, he talks about a better worldliness. Mm. You know, it's by having your, your, your mind and your disposition full of these big overarching storylines that you can actually become more use in the present. And you can see the importance of the present in a sharper way. It doesn't dull you to understanding what's going on there. Oh, that's lovely. Um, I'm going to
0: end here with my favorite quote from biblical critical theory. Um, and um, and just to say thank you, Chris, for writing such an amazing book, here it is. Yet the Christian should not tread some imaginary, safe, manicured, bourgeois path between pessimism and utopianism, taking care to fall for neither. In fact, she is both more pessimistic than the pessimist and more utopian than the utopian. She's more pessimistic than the pessimist because she recognizes the sin at the heart of the human problem cannot be expunged by any education, social reform, a cash injection, or a medical intervention. She is more utopian than the utopian because she believes in the radical transformation of the human heart begun in this life and completed in the next. She has a dream. She believes in a reality without mourning, crying, and pain. Yes, a reality without death, where every tear will be wiped from the eyes of those who belong to Christ. Her multi-lens biblical anthropology gives her a sober optimism a realistic romanticism, and a critical idealism.
1: On that note, Chris, thank you. It's been a huge joy, Connor.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org/gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope.